Make sure you subscribe and also check out congos.com slash podcast for links and photos of all the stuff we're discussing. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Uh, welcome to episode two of The Front Lounge with Congos. This podcast was sort of inspired by our discussions that we would have in the front lounge of our tour bus, and uh, a lot of them happened at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. or 9 in the morning uh, on a day off. And uh, I was never, ever up. You were never up at 9 a.m., no. So basically, the front lounge is where everybody gathers. You know, after a show, it's kind of a social place. The coffee machine's there, the liquor's there, the beer's there. So we ended up talking about anything and everything, and it, it, that's, that's where we got the idea for naming this show. Okay, so breaking news. I wanted to talk about, because we listened to our first podcast we did, and I realized how weird all of our accents sound. So I wanted to talk about that. I think I might have the weirdest one, because uh, I have, I've spent the most time in the most different countries. You know, I did notice um, that you actually have the most South African or British accent because you're the oldest and you, you kind of spent the most time there. But I noticed when you were talking about the garden, Dylan said tomatoes and you said tomatoes and that just didn't, yeah. was not in keeping with the accent formula. I think Johnny has the most English accent, the most South African accent and the most American accent depending on what subject he's talking about. Yeah, I totally change how I talk with different people. <laughs> this remember when Ryan, a South African friend of ours, moved to the states, and we'd only met him a couple of times before that when he was in the states. And then we were driving around, and he when, once he got familiar with us, he did, he said, "Can I can I ask you guys some things? Uh, do you like your accents? Because <laughs> they're fucking terrible, hey." <laughs> And uh, we, I'm, I've grown away from the South African accent. I don't really like it, or the Australian accent, but or the British still say, accent. You still say South African like a South African. Yeah, like I most say South African. Americans yeah. say South African, like they mm. enunciate all the syllables, but it's actually South African. Well, yeah, the reason I think they're so weird is that three of us were born in London. Then Danny's born in South Africa. We moved there at an early age. Our mom's American, grew up in Phoenix. Our dad's South African, but spent most of his adult life in... Um, the UK. In the UK. It's pretty much so, we sound like Madonna. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed I got in the Uber the other day and, and sometimes if the Uber driver's chatty, eventually they say, you know, where are you from? What's your, what's your accent? And uh, I told him, you know, an easy way to put it is it's half and half because, and he really got a kick out of that. Normally that doesn't get a laugh, but he laughed like really loud. <laughs> he was hoping for five star rating. Does it get a laugh? What's the other one is basketball. Basketball, yeah, that's a <laughs> basketball in, is one in of the... word accent change. Yeah, there's they, all of these southern hemisphere accents. The, I think the reason you develop a, a like or a dislike is usually because you know somebody that you like or you dislike. Probably, I, I don't know. We're we're not objective. Americans like every accent. I part don't of really the, like any of those accents. Part of the reason you start having a weird accent is because if you just talk in the accent you not naturally have, people don't understand you in a lot of words. Right, so, so you make some practical compromises. Yeah. Exactly. Like yeah. Mick, our tour manager, who's uh, Scottish from Glasgow, and he ends up having to repeat himself 10 times because nobody understands what he's saying. So eventually he adjusts his words. And when, when we go back to Scotland to play, all his Scottish friends are like, geez, you sound American. And norm, you know, no one else in the world would think he sounds American. He still sounds yeah. Scottish as fuck. His adjustment <laughs> is still in, unintelligible. He, we were out at uh, this at Black Rabbit Rose seeing this jazz band um, here in LA, Mick and I. And there's a Scottish, another Scottish engineer there. <laughs> and I've talked to him. His name is Frankie Fingers. And he, uh, I can understand him and I can understand Mick perfectly. And then they were both drunk talking to each other. And it was, it was just... Like another language, like fifth element or something. It was there. just vowels mixed with occasional cymbal crashes. You know, it was like... <laughs> Well, they were Scottish, drunk, and talking about gear. And only and reminiscing about people all with nicknames. Yeah, <laughs> nobody had a normal name. Yeah. <laughs> what, anyone else got breaking news? Oh, no, I haven't. This is a, we should slow down these podcasts if, we, <laughs> if you want me to have something to have done. Yeah, come back to me in a year. Yeah. 
Well, well you went to Vegas. Yeah, I, I went to Vegas, as you all know. <laughs> I talk to you every day. But I, we went, um, we had a merch guy that was out for about six months with us. He did the Kings, part of the Kings of Leon tour and the One Republic tour with us. And while we were in Europe, in Estonia, he met his wife on Tinder. <laughs> and I mean, he's he, now wife. He's now wife. And we, he got married uh, this last weekend, exactly three years, literally, date of the day they met on Tinder in, oh, no, in Tallinn, Estonia. So, so he quit, I, needless to say. Yeah, he quit the band and got a real job. Well, not quit the band, quit working for us and got a real job. He just was one of those guys that wasn't, he was not cut out for the road and he openly admits it. <laughs> and he, like many of the people, we have a nickname for him, uh, like most of the people that, that don't make it on the road, we call them things in relation to, like, because they're dead to us. So he is Muerto Matt. And we have... Uh, dead to us Derek. Dead to us Derek is one of Dylan's you know, oldest friends from mm. high school. and uh, Corpus Christi. Corpus Christi, yeah. Uh, well, so... Cor- I mean, wait, yeah, no, he, was some play on that. It was Corpus he, Christi. Yeah. He didn't end up liking doing merch on the road for a living, but he got a wife out of it. So it's not all bad. I think that's a pretty good story right there. It's pretty I, funny. I, like, Congress was featured in the wedding notes. Really? <laughs> yeah, you know, because obviously not everyone knows that. One, how did you guys meet? So in the the notes and that came with the wedding, it was Matt was out mm-hmm. on tour with Congress and he was tindering. <laughs> so that's the reason I'm talking about this publicly because he it was in their vows like that they met on uh, Tinder. So look it's at totally us! Open. Look at us bringing people together, matchmakers. Yeah, I think that's that's one of the people that's gotten married on tour with us. I think there's a, there's going to be one or two more. We won't say who. We'll mm-hmm. see. Um, my breaking news is that I've been cooking a lot. Uh, normally on, on tour, you don't get to cook that much because you have to either eat out or ca- there's catering or you order food or whatever. And I really miss cooking. So since we've been off the road, that's I just every night cooking lots of Indian food, eggs and toast. I brought a pasta sauce over to the studio the other day. I think... Danny and I were talking about it the other day. How, somebody said that... Who did you say said that mixing... A record is like cooking? I can't remember his name. It's uh, Phoenix's engineer. He's this very stereotypically French guy. And I was watching one of his mixing things. Of course he said it's like cooking. <laughs> yeah, it didn't sound... Usually you'd expect it to sound really goofy and pretentious, but it was so so genuine coming from him. He said, it is exactly like cooking. You know, you add a little bit of this, a little bit of that, add some reverb, and <laughs> then you have your dish. You is know? he talking about French cooking? Cause... He says, I cook a lot, you know, and for me it's the same. <laughs> Yeah, because if you're if you're likening a mix to French cooking, then I would imagine it to be quite a sort of subtle mix. It all turns out to be shit in the end. (laughs) (laughs) Now, for me, a French uh, Manu Chow, some of those French uh, Frenchier, you know, I guess he's Spanish and French, or what is he? He's from all over the place. Yeah. If you read his bio, Manu Chow's from like I think it's part Portuguese, part French, part this and that. It's um, uh, if I would well, it sounds like a Dutch oven type stew. I, I would almost say that a Stevie Wonder record is kind of like Indian food because <laughs> um, the Stevie Wonder records, number one, they're mixed amazingly, and he was pretty involved with the mixing. Um, but each element, like sometimes a hi hat, will just be so loud and off to one side, and I kind of liken that to Indian food because you might just get a flavor that just smacks you in the face, but somehow it's still in balance like, with everything. Yeah, else. cardamom pod that you you bite on yeah. well then i'm just imagining like pop records like super corny pop records or like McDonald's. the doritos of mixing <laughs> like just turn up the flavor to a thousand percent mm-hmm. everything is just salt and sweet and unsatisfying ultimately yes i think it's comparable i guess we could start talking about music only then that's a yeah uh oh we had a we had something we wanted to talk about um the link between music and math. Now, this is something that we kind of learned from an early age. It was just, it, to us, we just grew up with it. Our dad told it was important for us to know the connection between, between music and math and the relationships of vibrations and their frequencies and rhythm and how math plays a part in that. So we kind of grew up talking about this stuff, but a lot of people just might not even connect it to. They think, you know, music is art and math is science. Um, but we would like to talk a little bit about how they are connected. Maybe Johnny, since he's the most astute in this area, could talk about it. 
<laughs> you guys just wrote this down as a topic to talk about, and then I've got to pretend to be a scientist. I can save you. Just go watch that Disney thing, uh, the Math uh, Magic. Fantasia? No, it's a Donald Duck. Mathematics. Mathem- yeah, something oh, like yeah, that. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's really good. It's funny, too. Yeah, I mean, I think... Th- I think there was almost a concerted effort at one point, or there have been various times in history where there's been a, an effort to separate art from math to, and to separate like the rational from the artistic uh, and to kind of draw an artificial line between the two. You know, if you look at certain periods in music history, there was almost like this rejection from everything I learned in like my little bit of music history classes that there was the romantic period it was almost like a rejection of the baroque period which was you know more scientific yeah a hundred or so more years before it yeah so they kind of wanted to reject that as an idea and make everything seem like it was just this inspiration and emotion and all that and obviously it is that but it's it's neither one nor nor the other i think something a, a basic concept to wrap your head around the relationship is the octave the octave is probably the most important element of music and uh, of harmony and rhythm so an octave is actually the relationship of one to two so if you play a c and then you play the c above that the frequency is double and if you slow that octave down and you play a beat that's like a quarter note for instance that goes the octave of that would be and it seems like a kind of basic idea, but to to me that that says that there is a scientific undercurrent to all art, and it's either people are either aware of it or they're not. But you know, it's it's kind of interesting because people, anytime you get into a discussion, especially at a bar, you know, artists like to think it's some magic thing that's just pure inspiration. And if they if people understood the deep connection between science and art, it might not be such a debate. Well, I think, look, most of the time, I think that people go whole hog down there. It's only inspiration thing is because you're trying to compensate for the fact that you've not studied the <laughs> the theory or something behind something. But it's not, it's, you know, obviously neither side, so rejects, <laughs> neither side rejects the other. Like there is an element that is mystical or magical about it. You know, we, we all know what it's like to be sitting there. Uh, knocking your head against the wall trying to write a song and then uh, one moment happens and it all it all comes together i think the end result though is that ultimately the music when it takes its form as a vibration is whether you want to call it that or not is following the laws of mathematical and harmonic uh you know it's resonance basically yeah natural laws so there uh, there was this guy that we've all kind of dabbled in super lightly his name was joseph schillinger he was a russian uh composer and more so a kind of teacher of composition and he taught a lot of his students uh, you would know or would be like benny goodman glenn miller uh george gershwin and we'll throw up some links on the website of specific things that he was known to have been kind of uh a teacher on and he had a a book that he wrote called the mathematical basis for the arts and what the brief summary of from what my understanding of it is that he was trying to develop a system of theory that was based on actual mathematical theory and the understanding of the interrelation of vibrations rather than simply the observation of what composers had done in the past so i mean like when you go to school and what most of the school that all of us did you went into a music theory class. It was like, oh, Bach did this. That's why we do this, which is not really theory. It's basically history. And now it turns out when Schillinger, through analysis of Bach in his system, discovered that the reason why Bach has become such a perennial uh, composer and influence is because coincidentally or not, in the case of Bach probably, it lines up with a lot of a kind of mathematical approach to music. Well, he was right at the at the at the crossroads of the the way harmony had developed and trying to push it forward. Everybody's been trying to push forward harmony, you know, forever. Or I guess it depends on what you mean by forward. But uh, you know, his those fundamental problems he was struggling with, nobody really thinks about anymore. Which is how to 
uh, increase your chord repertoire on a single keyboard and you'd have to compensate with tuning and all that kind of stuff. So he was... You, I guess you're talking more about his harmonic lines and their the way. No, they well, yeah, but it's all yeah, it's all definitely related. You know, there was a, there were in Western uh, classical music. There's hundreds of years where literally they don't go from like the key of D minor to the key of whatever uh, right. A flat major. You don't you don't play a sixth. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> these they're like we can't get there. It was like a, a paradigm what sounds shift. wrong to them. I think there's if anybody can hear something. Uh, that sounds wrong to them. I was just playing some of that pygmy music to a friend of mine, and she was just like, "No, this is not music. This is not." And I, I, I for me, it was it was kind of a weird experience to play for something which I thought was so cool, and so it felt very natural to me. And she was, and she was just like, "No, this is not good." Well, <laughs> I think uh, that kind of my brain was going in a certain way with this idea that underlying all music and all art is some sort of mathematical laws um it, le- it leads to the question of how you listen to something you know do, do you knowing that do you listen to something and still think oh this is cool this is not cool you know or or do you try and listen in a way the fact that this music is hitting you and it's acting on your ears and your the organs in your body in a certain way and and producing certain emotions um, that it's a very interesting thing to just to think about listening to it in that context, or just like, oh, this reminds me of college, you know, in a more associative way. If you realize that the vibrations are acting act, acting on your apparatus, you can listen to music in a different way and not be so attached to your, you know, whatever current trends are at, attracting you. Yeah, the problem is identifying what is your attachment. You know, there was a period where I couldn't listen to certain 80s music except for maybe Tears for Fears because I was opposed to the sounds you know and that went away so it's a it's a it's but that's a kind of obvious attachment so what what are what are the more fundamental attachments like how do you know that you're not listening with just your your associations I think one one nobody's perfect you know we all are have our attachments we all have our like this is cool or this is fashionable music or this is not you know um but i think if you just have the idea when you listen to something new uh, i'm i'm not gonna you know this doesn't remind me of that or this doesn't remind me of this i'm gonna listen in a way where you let the vibrations kind of fall on you and see what it does to your emotions Mm. i think we all have that problem of basically associative listening um, I think the bigger problem is probably with negative associative listening. Like if you have a positive association with some piece of music or some song, at least the potential of being open to the possibilities or the deeper potential of that music is is there. Whereas if you have a kind of automatic negating Dismissal. of some type of music, then you've completely closed yourself off to any type of um, influence that music could have over you or impression that that could have on you and how it might affect your emotions. I think that I think we're probably pretty guilty of it as well as being like completely turned off by certain types of music for our entire lives because of some arbitrary association. And now later in our lives, we're coming back to it. Like Danny says, no, Oh, 80s music is cool. Or this is actually, there's some value well, in this. Type I of mean, it's kind of an easy one to, to pick because, you know, unless you're a country fan, most people are like, oh, I don't, don't listen to country. I don't like it, you know. Mm. And it's because you associate it with a certain culture or whatever and you're just not into that. But especially older country, I mean, you listen to that stuff. It's some good shit out yeah. there. In it. And I think, I mean. There, who's, it, that, who's that comedian again who does that, pa- that pandering song? Uh, Bo Burnham. Bo Bur- yeah, go look up <laughs> Bo Burnham's country pandering. Yeah, that's uh, We'll awesome, put a link awesome, to it because it's dude. fucking hilarious. And country didn't used to be so shit, obviously. But uh, Well, did. you see, I think if, if you're talking about how you listen to things, I think rhythm is perhaps the least associative, uh, associative element of music because obviously lyrics, it's, when you listen to lyrics, you're actually dealing with concepts. So you're going to have mm. associations. If you hear the word love, you're going to think, oh, she dumped me or I love this person or they don't love me. Mm. Then har- harmony even has more of a associative element to it because you have more memories associated with that, like sad moments in your life. You might associate with sad songs, but I don't know if that necessarily proves that, you know, a minor chord is sad, but like there's certain rhythmic elements that, I mean, like it's why EDM music, it's it's like the most simple version of it, but it just seems that that basic 
subdivision of an octave of like you know speeding up of mm-hmm. a kick drum that just, it literally just works like you can't help but feel excitement when yeah, that kind of moment happens yeah it's it's you're not thinking like cuz you have all kinds of negative associations with EDM music probably half the people listening to this are going i fucking hate EDM but if you are in there and you're feeling the speaker you feel a certain kind of energy that's like, okay, I'll move like this. <laughs> yeah, but it still doesn't answer the question of whether that's associative or inherent. It's, I think if you look at a baby, yeah, uh, that you know, babies don't yet have a whole bunch of baggage of what they associate, what kind of music with in their memories. But you play a rhythmic track to a baby that's at least nine, ten months old, mm-hmm. they're going to move. It's, it's talking yeah. to their bodies. Well, this is related to the Schillinger thing, but that there was a guy in 2000, uh, three or four. Uh, I'll look up his. I think it's Gottfried or something. Gottfried. Uh, we'll put the link. But he um, he made a, a link between pretty much every rhythm around the world, except Indian music, which is more complicated, I think, uh, and Euclidean geometry, which is finding like the the largest common factor of two integers. And you can kind of visualize it. We'll put up some graphics so you can see it. But if you had a division of twelve and you wanted to spread eight beats into that 12 grid as equally as possible, Euclidean geometry allows you to do that, to figure out how to most evenly distribute those eight beats. And it pretty much explains every rhythm around the world. Even, you know? even complex kind of polyrhythms that you see in West Africa right. or whatever. So if you, if you had like a 16 grid and four and two going into that 16 grid, then... Uh, you would get four on the floor with the with the snare drum on the next thing, but that's a very simple one. But you could do it with with different integers too, and explain lots of rhythms, so which maybe- is interesting. That it's just it's it's fundamentally rhythm. At least you know simplistic rhythm seems to be the relationship of two whole numbers. Right now, you see, obviously, people throughout. It's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> people have been approaching this idea. Because music obviously is so important to human beings for whatever reason, uh, and to tie back to Schillinger and to the whole maybe beginning of this conversation is like we're, everyone's been interested in trying to understand if there is a way to more often link the music you're creating with the effect you're trying to create. Because accidentally, sometimes you can write a happy song and it happens to click with people and think it's, it's happy. But there has been this belief, and I think in our music, we've had somewhat of an interest in saying, like, well, I would like the, my people that listen to this music to feel this, that, or the other. How can I do that in the most uh, kind of accurate way? Mm. It's funny because I... I'm basically trying to do the opposite now on this next batch of songs and record because um, while I am very interested and I totally am on board with the idea that there is science behind music and you can employ it, um, I don't think I'm scientific enough to use it really well. You know, and sometimes if I just let my subconscious come out in something, it actually produces a better result than me trying to think about it and craft it. I don't and think any of us are personally. If, if you know, we're bas- uh, like especially about this Euclidean stuff and Schillinger. I, I'm, I've read like two pages of Schillinger, and then it got too complicated, and I got bored, and I went back on my iPhone. <laughs> but it was, it is, it is sometimes like one of you. You know, I'd never thought of swing as as pushing towards a triplet. But then once I had that, heard that concept, you know, and now, I, now it actually helps. Mm. Um, yeah, so I mean, it's a combination. Like, obviously, you learn theory, you learn certain of these things, and then you as a f- human being are created with the same principles or evolved as the same principles. I don't mean to start a whole fucking religious debate between <laughs> anybody. Either way, you have these mathematical principles within yourself of ratio, of balance, of harmony, and you react in a certain way. So perhaps what, we, what Jesse's saying is maybe, it's, it, maybe the better route to it is a being more in tune with your subconscious or with this quieter part of you that is... Well, you don't have to be thinking, okay, this is a square and a triangle and this, how this turns into a rhythm. You just, you know it and feel it within yourself automatically. Yeah, I think, I think we are like tuning forks. You know, we, we ring out and we resonate with different things. And in the creative process, if you, 
accept that you are a tuning fork and something comes into your mind or come, you know you you accidentally come across a chord on a piano and it just rings in your heart then then you trust that and you kind of go with it because probably there's other people out there that are going to ring to the same chord speaking yeah. of all this deep stuff why don't we talk about music business when you talk about the music business, and if any, and if we butchered any of those concepts, anybody out there who's an actual like mathematician, we just just He's message not us. listening to this yeah. podcast. <laughs> yeah. Just message us. <laughs> yeah, set us straight. We're happy to be corrected. We'll do a whole separate podcast every week called Redactions, Co- Redactions, <laughs> and Corrections. Uh. So, music business. I mean, we w- this is like the polar opposite of that last discussion. The, yeah. the business side of music, which we love talking about just as much. Yeah, one of the things let's talk. Let's talk about uh, like sync licensing. Yes, synchronizations. It means when your music is used specifically with something commercial. So, either a commercial, a trailer, in a movie, in a TV show, that kind of thing. Anywhere where they're charging money, they got to pay you. With, theoretically, with picture generally. So you know, in a movie, for, if you hear a song in a movie, that's called a synchronization. Um, and that's, you know, last week we talked about radio. If you, if you found us on radio, the next most likely place that you would have found us, I would guess is in some sort of TV show or commercial or whatever. I mean, come with me now is just everywhere. And, um, we thought maybe we'd discuss the way that stuff happens. Well, so, I mean, we, the first sync we ever got, I think, was was it wasn't on a sketch. It was no. I mean, well, yeah. You're saying on "Come with Me Now," but I think someone in Greece used Escape, <laughs> well, not Escape, uh, Curious from the very first album. I feel like that. I don't. Maybe I'm yeah, making that up, but it's something like that happened. No, well, well I can't remember that. So let's just talk about Holy Motors. Yes. Whatever it was, it was so minor that we don't remember. But well, um, I mean, the real first thing where we where we became fully aware of the impact of it was uh, "Come with Me Now" got a sync in the one of the bowl games. That's when we thought we realized that was before that. Holy Motors. No, it was after Holy Motors. But the impact from the bowl oh, right. game was crazy. Do you remember it was for some college football championship or something in 2013 or something like that, and they synced the song and they used it in one of the commercials for the upcoming bowl game and that week because we were still doing everything independently we'd already had come with me now out um for sale on itunes and we saw our sales go up to like a thousand we sold a thousand copies that week Mm -hmm. of come with me now we thought holy shit you know, we just had never seen the yeah. most sales we'd seen I in said a week we was do like one of these football games every week. <laughs> yeah, I think we, our average sales were probably around like seventy singles a week. What? There's like seventy singles total. Yeah, it could be. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> so many. Yeah, I was trying to be optimistic. ITunes, yeah. So yeah, that I mean, there we've had some f- people always have ideas about sinks about like. Because it always brings up the idea of selling out. Like, you know, you try and picture a band in the 70s, like Led Zeppelin or whatever, doing a commercial for a fast food restaurant. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously changed so much now that you're it, seeing bands doing it all the time. It's still selling out. It's just accepted. I mean, there's, you know, there's no question that it's, it's a compromised way to get your music out there. But, you know, it's, we basically have to decide, is it better than not having it at all? And, um, and then there's the money. <laughs> Yeah, look, so it's, we don't it's, sell out unless you pay us really well. If you're not us selling well, out, if you're not so precious about everything you do, you know, I don't, I don't think Queen wrote "We Will Rock You" and "We Are the Champions" without, with, without thinking even just the tiniest amount that this song might be used for any type of celebration or yeah. bravado or you know pumping groups of people up. There's no way he they wrote that and thought hmm, this is going to be a quiet living room candlelit bath song. <laughs> so we yeah. I mean we Whereas look, John Lennon see, what do you say right we're going to run a swimming pool yeah obviously money is a big part of why people make music because mm. uh, if you can make money and make music then you're living the dream living well, I think the what might dream, interest Mike. people is you know how this type of thing works is because we see this a lot you know people come across our music from uh, synchronization they hear it um, on a TV show or commercial and they always write to us or they comment on a um, Instagram 
post or something saying, I hope you guys got paid for this. And yes, someone got paid for it. Uh, you know, the way basically uh, the music business works, if you're in a major label contract or any kind of uh, record label contract, is that they'll generally give you an advance to record your album. And whatever that amount is, you don't receive any more money from any type of music um, sales or anything of the sort until that money's been recouped. So if you're lucky enough to recoup, which is very rare these days, then every time a synchronization happens, you'll start making some portion of that uh, money afterwards. But most cases, it just goes back towards paying the label um, back what they've advanced you and whatever they've spent on marketing and, and any other types of um, crap that they spend money on. So why don't we talk a little bit? We had a... We've... If you if you found us because of sinks, then you realize we've not turned many down because <laughs> Come With Me Now was probably everywhere and it probably annoyed the shit out of a lot of people and we're really not sorry about that. Uh, but we did have one or two that came uh, to us where we, you know, because we have to approve every usage and there was one that came from a, a major fast food company, we won't say who, obviously, but the bottom line at the end of it we had, we kept saying no we just thought it was really bad for our image we didn't like the company we didn't like the association like nothing about it felt right for us and you got to put this in the context that we've said yes to like almost everything else <laughs> Uh, I think there was a Neutrogena um, shampoo commercial in Mexico that I think we said yes to. Yeah, so we're so. not like we're not super precious artistes, if you get what my drift. But they kept just raising the number of what they wanted this, to pay us, this, and it was it was preposterous. And we still ended up saying no just because we thought long term it would have been bad for us. I think for anyone who has that sort of hypothetical, we had the hypothetical discussion all the time before we were making money for music. We we're like. Would you do if so and so offered you this for your song? Would you take it? You know, and it's kind of a fun hypothetical discussion to have. And then we were faced with a real dilemma because I think we were in London at the time. We were opening up for One Republic, and um, our publisher called our manager and told him, "Like, guys, I got this amazing sync. It's huge. It's a lot of money." He was so excited about it. And once we kind of saw what the commercial was, what it was about, it was so. Fucking it shit! Was, it was just terrible. It was not good. Not it a was good one look. of the cheesiest things I've ever seen in my life. At the same time, it was not easy to say no to like a ton of money. Basically, that could have you know it could have paid for our touring. You know, if, so that we could go tour places that are too expensive. We could have used that money to some something really cool. It was one of the. And that's what one the, of the devil kept saying to us. <laughs> but well, turning it down was one of the best pleasures. That was more fun than than not getting the money. Was just disappointing on people, you know, on the business side of who we work with. Just intentionally disappointing them was just. It was a great feeling. It was cathartic. Well, I remember we got a, we got a personal call from our publisher pleading with us to take it, <laughs> saying, saying you guys are making a mistake. Please just you know rethink this. You got to take this, and you got to understand we had never seen anything close to this amount of money for us for anything related <laughs> to music and the. Like, but like Danny said, I've never felt more joy turning something down. Like since then, we've gotten sinks that we did accept that were, uh, you know, for the same amount or more. But I, none of them felt as good as turning that down. Yeah, and it yeah. wasn't a moral thing. Like you know, I don't think anyone's pretending to be uh, morally objected to. No one was morally objecting to syncing uh, their music with the company or whatever. It was just that this was so bad and cheesy and we just couldn't you know we couldn't bear to watch our song associated with it and then you saw it on a wwe commercial (laughs) (laughs) so yeah i guess that kind of wraps it up we're not sellouts until we are like i say i won't sell out unless you pay me (laughs) sell out yeah do you guys want to george bernard shaw whenever someone says if you don't like my principles i've I've got uh, other ones. Uh, uh, Groucho Marx. Oh, Groucho, Groucho. Member berries. Yeah, you guys want to talk about... So if to, to recap the idea, this is where it's from based on the South Park concept of entering a very nostalgic sort of, remember when, you know, that type of thing. And so what, should we talk about the Kings of Leon tour? Because that was like our first major tour. We were first of three. It was us, Young, the Giant, and Kings of Leon. And it was so exciting to get that tour. We knew about it like four months before it was happening. 
and we couldn't tell anyone. We couldn't att- for like two months. We couldn't tell anybody because yeah. it hadn't announced yet. But it was so exciting. And then actually going on tour, you know, we have some of the best memories from that tour. Um, yeah, I think you know we we bumped into um, a couple of the guys from Young the Giant not too long ago. And we ended up just like sitting around going, member, member, member. Like every, it was such a easy to, when you're a support band for a band like Kings of Leon, like it's one of the easiest jobs in the world because like all the pressure's on them. They got to sell the tickets. You kind of show up, play your half an hour, 45 minute set, and then you go out to the parking lot where your bus is and just have a party. <laughs> so, well, yeah, we ran into Eric and Francois from Young the Giant and they we started reminiscing about the Kings of Leon tour because they had just played Red Rocks and sold it out. And Danny and as I were, headliners, as yeah. headliners. Yeah. And Danny and I were congratulating them on it and saying, geez, like how fucking crazy is it that a couple of years ago you yeah. were opening there and now you've just sold out your own show there. And the first thing they said, and I don't know if they were saying this purely to like make us feel better that, you know, <laughs> it was just like boosting our ego, but I did believe them that they said, yeah, but, Really, when we were there, like the only thing we could think about, not the only thing, but one of the things we were thinking about was how cool the Kings of Leon tour was because essentially if you're the headliner and you're playing, not that we've ever been a headliner playing a venue that big, but I can imagine that that is a ton of work because we've, pressure, you know, yeah. we've played it on a much smaller scale. And when you're the headliner, there's so much pressure. There's so much extra work going into it. Whereas if you're the opener, you're kind of just hanging out, playing your little 40-minute set, eating the great catering. and I think, yeah, running through a day's work would be kind of a fun thing. So um, Kings of Leon had like a ton of buses. I think they had eight or nine buses for a band and all their crew. Young the Giant had two buses and we had one bus and we would all show up at these amphitheaters and it was a summer tour so it was mostly outdoor stuff so in the morning 9 a.m or whatever all the buses would roll up and you know halfway through everyone kind of got to know each other the kings of the young crew were super nice people they kind of welcomed us and took care of us so we wake up and go into the catering the the, the chefs that they were that were traveling with the band with kings of leon <laughs> were some of the best chefs I've ever witnessed. They they had this amazing spread for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and you just walk into the catering. Same catering every day, different venue, but you see the same people, and every I think they repeated a meal twice, like out of 30 dates or whatever. That <laughs> yeah. means there was like 60 or 90 different meals that they made. And so you're hanging out with the crew and Young the Giant eating, and then, you know, go for a run around the parking lot or work out, take a shower eat lunch <laughs> talk to your friends it's like a basically like a cruise ship yeah where like you rehab. have to do where you have to do half an hour set every then, night then mm. then then you got to put your in-ears in and go play for 30 minutes and then then you go have a nice dinner and then um kings of leon were they you know they were on a little bit of a different schedule they would often take off or, or fly to the next gig or whatever but then it was us and young the giant and the kings of leon crew basically hanging out till bus call drinking or <laughs> eating the leftovers i mean it was like a, it was i've never been to summer camp but i imagine that's what it feels like, like <laughs> I, there, was, there was one spe- i mean we'll probably have several of these memberberry uh things about that tour but one of the ones that really sticks out in my memory is kind of early in that kings of leon tour uh, a lot of our crew was still kind of getting to know all the gear. The, most of our crew are like our friends that not all of them started off as music business professionals or engineers or whatever. So they're learning as they go, as we're learning as we go. But our tour manager is super experienced and it's the reason he's our tour manager. So one day on one of those Kings of Leon shows, everything went wrong on stage and our tour manager was so pissed off with the rest of the guys, with Mo, stage manager, and like our guitar techs, that he made them unload all the gear from the trailer in the parking lot, set it up as though we were doing a show, and just like basically do drills, <laughs> setting stuff up. And at, I think this was after they started drinking too. Yeah, they they didn't know this was happening. They'd all like, oh, we'd pack the trailer, we're gonna have a beer, and Mick says to them, all right, guys empty the trailer set it up we're doing this here in the parking lot and they had to do it and we you know and we obviously endorsed we're like yep get him to work Mick and I just remember like like everyone was in that parking lot all the rest of the Kings of Leon crew and the Young the Giant guys like skateboarding around throwing balls and like Frisbee. Frisbee. It's just like a silly little carnival scene, and our guys are there working. It's the naughty boys in the corner that had to go <laughs> s- set up the gear. 
Well, yeah, to set the stage, I mean, that tour was so easy for everyone. Not that our crew doesn't work their asses off, you know, on a regular basis on all the other tours. But this was, you know, they were doing all the same things we were doing. They were kicking a soccer ball around, you know, setting up the stage for half an hour, then, you know, relaxing. And, and so Mick whipped them into shape. It was not easy for the Kings of Leon crew, I'll tell you. The, those guys, and, you know, when we did our own sort of headline tours on a smaller scale, our crew worked so freaking hard and you we kind of learned a lot from that Kings of Leon crew because they would start they would load in at whatever 8 or 9 a.m. and then they would tear down probably be done by 1 or 1 30 a.m. in the morning and then yeah. get on the buses and go do the same thing so uh, yes. and, and they Mohawk had Mike. eight semi trucks full of gear Mohawk Mike was we called him Magic Mike yeah it's Magic Mike yeah, yeah. Because he was, uh, what was his? Position? Oh, he's mo- he did motion, right? He so he, did, he moved all the lights. Like on when the stage is that big, the the light movement, if it's got pulleys yeah, and all that, automation. has a specific um, uh, engineer, and that's what he did. And he he went on to actually work at SpaceX, but uh, he used to lead these workouts. <laughs> it, it felt a bit like a cult because they were too fucking hard. And uh, I did one of them. Mo and I did one of them with him, uh, and it was right before Mo skipped load in the next day. No, um, Nathan broke his ribs, so we skipped those shows for a couple weeks. Oh, that's right. Mo was going to uh, skip, skip loading the next day because his arms were hurting so bad. Yeah, I just remember he he literally couldn't move his arm up. Above he was his drinking shoulder. Guinnesses with a straw. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let me. There's one last memory I have from that specific night that we had. They had Mick was having the guys set up to practice. Is Johnny and I took some of the most ridiculous accordion and big rig truck photos that have ever been taken that's all i'm going to say we'll post those up on the website which yeah. maybe uh, johnny marlow yeah johnny marlow photographer uh congress.com slash podcast by the way we're going to be throwing up pictures of all the stuff we're talking about so check that out while you're listening or after you listen mm-hmm. all right favorite gear of the week oh favorite piece of gear of the week um oh we were going to talk about the rupert neve 542 the tape saturator emulator so this is most of the gear we're talking about is probably going to be obscure especially if you're not into engineering but involving a guy named hopefully Rupert. you can hopefully you can get as excited just from our tone talking about gear because what what this piece does is it kind of mimics the sound of old tape machines you know most recordings used to be done to tape and then now in the digital world, it's done into a computer or whatever. But there's a certain sound that tape has. If you if you have a cassette player and you hear an old tape, or you you know you recorded a mixtape too loud and you get that distortion, well, just imagine like a really really nice version of that, a very high quality. That's what tape used to sound like. And a lot of people still do record to tape. Anyway, this box emulates that sound in an analog way. It's not a digital plug-in. And it sounds amazing. It's Rupert Neve is you know one of the biggest names in um, gear and engineering. He's a British guy. He's like he's sort of a mad genius. And uh, you can select on it like the different speed. It emulates if the tape is at fifteen IPS or thirty IPS, and it's got two different types of um, saturation that you can uh, blend in. It's like a super. It's very niche piece of gear, but I love it. I don't. I I seem to remember when we got this. Uh, Dad was in the studio, and you guys were showing it to him oh, yeah. and explaining it to him and like showing how it emulated this, and you can adjust the tape speed. He's like, "Yeah, I remember this when it was a tape machine, <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't have to emulate anything. I just had it." Yeah, um, and I remember having to clean the tape heads every time. You know, we were going to do another pass of recording. Or bake or like, tapes. You have to bake tape. If you leave your tapes sitting around, the they'll get oxidized. And one of the ways to make them solid again is to uh, put them in the oven at a low heat. So people, you know, people putting their tape in the oven, uh, cooking it. The funny thing is, Dad still has, you know, two, or no, just a 24 track Studer um, tape machine where we we could have gotten a real thing but we decided to buy a little too tiny lazy box you gotta like press rewind and wait for it to rewind I have memories when, like, when we were kids he would let us go down into the studio and uh, just cut tape and splice it back together like not actual tape he would just give us leftover bits of tape to cut and that was fun as a kid but now when I think about doing that Rick, let's try the chorus there instead of after that verse yeah, you know, four I mean, hours later. Okay, uh, it doesn't what's work. What's crazy is we were watching the the Metallica documentary, and Lars 
was he's kind of a perfectionist um partly because his rhythm is and his timing's not very good <laughs> but it was it, it was, was back yeah, then. It, used to, it used to be very good but anyway so he was editing his drum tracks and the engineer had to edit all his drum tracks on tape and they were showing this guy edit his drum tracks it was fucking insane it's like you think it's <laughs> difficult just to put you know splice a verse here or chorus here he was editing uh snare drum fills. hits and fills and all sorts of things and Lars was on him on like every bar well they had like on whatever the song they were working on they had 26 takes of drums <laughs> Lars, Lars had gridded out the sections into some sort of resolution I don't know what the resolution was and then he was like marking them all down and you can see well, if you had to do that you'd be mad if people got your shit on LimeWire too <laughs> <laughs> so let me just ask you this uh, on the Egomaniac, is there a specific thing you can remember using this tape saturator on where people might be able to kind of hear what you're talking about? We had it during um, that record, right? Yeah, I think, well, maybe one one thing that Since. might be, yeah, but I used it pretty subtly on most stuff. But, but w- one thing where I kind of drove it pretty hard maybe was the vocal uh, on songs like um, Birds Do It or Autocorrect. I th- I'm pretty sure, if I remember correctly, I drove the vocals through it a little harder so you could actually hear the distortion as an effect. Um, but, you know, for the most part, I, I would use it now. It, like, fattens up the signal, you know. Your drums sound a little beefier. or That's that's the way I probably use it now going forward. Mm. Yeah, it, relates, it actually relates to uh, harmonics. Again, you see, but- mixing is like cooking. If you use terms like beefier and, you know, buttery, it's like... <laughs> Exactly. Mm. Yeah, vegetarian uh, in life, uh, fucking meat eaters in mixing. Yeah. <laughs> um, what's it like to be in a band with your brothers, guys? It sucks. Oh, so remember last question. week? Last week we said we were going to talk about which lyrics of each other's we hate. Oh shit! I forgot about this. I didn't do. I didn't prepare. I didn't do my research. I don't know anyone else's which, lyrics. Which songs did, did you write, Joe? <laughs> well, why don't we start with Come With Me Now Oh yeah, that one, I don't like it <laughs> <laughs> I, I wrote that one And I don't particularly like a lot of it It's, it's always yeah, The, second, that, the that, second verse always felt awkward to me uh, How does it go So again? what is this, a, like a self-loathing segment? You're going to talk about your own lyrics? When you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah you meant to shit it. on our lyrics it's, Oh yeah, I, don't worry <laughs> <laughs> I'll get there But I was just saying, I do kind of Agree on that one. When First it's funny. album's out of bounds, by the way, because that was us finding our way, and let's just leave that one alone. Yeah, that was going to be one of my picks. I don't know what to say now. Here, just go around the circle. I'll pick one of. We're sitting in a circle. This is Johnny. I'm sitting next to Dylan. I'll pick one of Dylan's. Dylan pick one of Danny's, etc. One um, of Dylan's lyrics. I generally like a lot of Dylan's lyrics. Sex on the radio. Sex on the, sex on the radio. So a lot of the verses I'm not crazy about. The verses of Sex on the Radio. Fuck you! <laughs> yeah, I never liked Idol TV show. I was gonna bring that lineup. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I don't like the pun. It was. It wasn't intended to be a pun at first. It was. I didn't even think of the idol, like American Idol, because it was written. Probably when that show was just starting to you know become popular, it was written a long time before we even put it out, so it wasn't it wasn't intended to be a pun. And then when I know I remember you guys saying you didn't like it, and I was like, well, I'm just you know, in a hundred years, American Idol is going to be forgotten, and Sex on the Radio is going to be remembered. <laughs> uh, All right, so Dylan, tell us about one of Danny's songs that is terrible. Uh, I, you can I, include stuff that's not on the album too. I would have to look through the, the lyrics. I, there's not many of Danny's that I dislike. I think it's it's the association that I put towards uh, some of all of your lyrics when I start singing them in my own head in my lounge singer voice. When I do that, I start to hate everyone's lyrics. Like, what Danny, does that sound like? Oh, kids these days. <laughs> That's the, you know, they Dylan's don't have respect. can ruin any fucking song. That, he will ruin, yeah. he's got a special skill. Talent. It's a talent. Yeah. Uh, I, well, I feel I like I've got a one version of that that I do with yours. Factors of nine reduced <laughs> yeah. over time. Jason and Brown. That you can do. We, I would love to have Richard Cheese 
If you guys don't know who Richard Cheese is, just go search for him on YouTube Let's or Spotify. Let's not give them too many ideas. Let's not ruin the music for our fans. We can ruin it for ourselves because <laughs> we play these songs, you know, 300 times a year. It would be an honor. It would. I still think it would be an honor if Richard Cheese did a bad version of Come With Me Now. Um, all right. So, Danny, what's one of Jesse's lyrics? Um, it, it may be easier so, to find one that you like. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so bad at remembering lyrics, though, especially... Uh, what was on the last record again? I remember one that you 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 kind of try to get me out of using. What's that? Is uh in in I want to know when it goes always on the defense, always on the fence. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, I still don't like that. Yeah, I don't I like that one. Either. I can't stand that one. Because um, it reminds you of the Ali G skit. That's the only reason why. <laughs> There's also a joke. <laughs> I yeah, talking about listening associatively. I c- I couldn't hear that without picturing Ali G getting stuck in a loop. That's weird because uh, I like uh, the "I Want to Know" lyrics of Jesse. I like, I like, yeah. yeah I remember saying I, I was trying so hard to convince him. I was like, I like every other lyric. Just change this one. All right. Just- so Jesse already said he doesn't like "Come with Me Now." We can do another one if you want. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was just a blanket statement, just for to get a rise. But um, this is a hard one because I love the song, and and objectively, I don't have a problem with the lyric. But just on on. This time I won't forget when it says, oh, I'm alive, I'm taking my first breath. Like, I, it took me a while to get behind that lyric because it just rubbed me the wrong way for some reason. I don't know why. Um, but it's one of those things that I've kind of grown to accept and now I like it and it's part of the song. But, you know, it's funny how lyrics kind of, sometimes you don't know why you don't like it. You know, maybe it triggers some memory or some something in your subconscious that... Yeah, I remember us having a debate about that section about but those lyrics this sums up what it's actually like to be in a band with your brothers because i can genuinely say that if i read any of your lyrics and i'm not saying this is a compliment um <laughs> from someone else if someone if i you know someone else had, had signed their name underneath any of your lyrics i would think oh that's a fucking good lyric i want to listen to that but the fact that you're my brothers immediately i have all sorts of associations with what you're like in real life you know, and not just in a, on a piece of paper and what you act like, or if we just got in an argument, or whatever. And I go, this fucking guy, you know, yeah. he's he's trying to write something really profound and sincere. What a fucking douche! Yeah. Like if one of us wrote, uh, "I am the walrus," we immediately would have thrown that out from from one of us. I think you know because it's oh, such yeah. a psychedelic, uh, abstract lyric. We would have been like, "That what the fuck are you talking about, Danny or Dylan or whatever?" Mm. Yeah, that's probably the, the biggest. But it, as a Beatles lyric, it's fucking you know amazing. Well, the biggest difficulty... because we're not convincing psychedelic characters. Yeah, the to biggest... ourselves, yeah, I guess. Yeah, the biggest difficulty we have. What were you going to say? <laughs> uh, in a band as brothers, as a band of brothers, is any amount of objectivity. I think it's basically. It requires a little bit of time and stepping away from it, like Jesse did. Now he likes this time I won't forget because it's. I been, always like the song. It was been, just some lyrics that I couldn't. Even a lyric. Hit. Now it's been ten years since that song was written or whatever, so he can accept it. He still doesn't like "Come with Me Now." <laughs> That's going to take um, another eon. All right, let's talk about something deep. Some oh, my, deep thoughts. I feel like my lyrics got left out, so I'm, I'll volunteer the. Oh, I, I had a I had a thought for your lyrics if you want. Uh. Any single lyric taken in isolation of yours, I, I think is good. But when you take all your songs, at least the ones that have been released, it's like, do you have any other fucking tone other than sarcasm? <laughs> but uh, Two in the Morning is not Okay, sarcasm. I forgot yeah, about Two, two in the, the Morning. Two in the Morning yeah. is the one. I, or I haven't told you guys, troll. but I wrote that sarcastically. Yeah. <laughs> or it's a well, really, really good didn't we yeah. when we first were playing songs from egomaniac to people like our, in our uh, business side of things and they heard that they said two in the morning is one of my favorite songs and when they found out danny wrote it they couldn't believe it it's like danny fucking wrote that which he is wrote a yeah. sensitive song what, and it's not that like we all know that he's capable of that because we've heard the songs but i think people do think of you as like the you're the sarcastic brother i mean i think but that's why we all actually found it hard to pick on one of your lyrics we all like that uh, sarcasm yeah if you've ever met us in a meet and greet if you don't know our names but you know the lyrics you'll probably be able to pick Danny out by his <laughs> sarcasm yeah I'm a, I'm a I'm the college douchebag who didn't go to college <laughs> I used to have a teacher a geometry teacher and she would say sarcasm is the mark of immaturity and I really what? think it, yeah. was she kidding no she was serious she had no sense of humor. <laughs> um, and I honestly think 
she didn't. She just have didn't a sense get it. Like right. she, literally, she, the uh, it's a sign of intelligence. Sarcasm. Yeah. Well, I mean, scientifically speaking, that's that's definitely true. <laughs> but but that's not doesn't. I think you. Yeah, she must have had her her humor organ removed. All right. So deep thoughts. I thought we could talk about this book that my girlfriend got me. Um, it's called How Your Unconscious Mind Rules Your Behavior by Leonard Mladenov. Um, uh, true story. I, but I think I had an Uber driver who recommended that book to me. I took a photo of it on my phone, and then I forgot about it. Jesse, Je- he's sharing his car, so he, he's always Ubering to the studio. That's why he's got so many got I have an Uber, Uber driver stories. stories yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so it's pretty fascinating. It's quite light reading. Um, well, the, I mean, the content isn't light reading. Obviously, the experiments and discoveries that they're doing at that level are um, very deep, but the way it's presented for the layman is um, very it's condensed. Nice. Yeah, it's condensed. And so some of the experiments that they're doing it are quite fascinating. There's one where they, they set up a grocery store aisle with the exact same type of wine. So it's one's a German wine, one's a French wine, but they're the exact same dryness, the exact same alcohol content, price, grape, um, on the same eye level on the shelf, and they alternate between days of playing German music and French music, and customers, fun days and dreary days. <laughs> <laughs> and customers um, on the days that they were playing French music bought the French wine by a majority of like seventy percent, and then vice versa on the days that they played German music. And when asked afterwards if it had any influence on their purchase, most of them didn't even know or take note that the music was playing let alone that it was french or german so i just thought you know there and that's just one of the examples that it goes into in the book i like that i mean um you know it makes sense and i think we, we've discussed these kinds of ideas a lot before this idea that you're you don't necessarily govern yourself fully there's all kinds of subconscious stuff going on leading to your decisions but i think another that's auditory you know stimulus that affects your decisions i think another kind of strong one is smell because um, I noticed that when if there's you walk into a place a lot of times you don't take note of the smell unless it's really something strong or different or outstanding but it triggers memories so quickly like if you go to a mall you know if I go to a mall and you walk past the Abercrombie smell and it's just this teenage cologne smell wafting out for me it like just reminds me of being 13 you know and wearing cologne or deodorant kind of you just kind of start doing that and it reminds you of those times and it just makes me want to go and buy those clothes and i <laughs> i had a whole cologne collection when i was 13 like, really remember, yeah it's pretty ridiculous i thought you had thing. one red one oh, i no, i had like five or six johnny was like the most into fashion and cologne i, I remember and i wanted that i wanted your red cologne but i the just one, like the, the bottle. one cologne i, like I have i forget what it was called actually sm- actually smelled nice didn't smell like cologne it smelled like a weird spice mixture well that was then by you, the way co- a lot of colognes smell nice then you put them on a person yeah you, know, really, you fucking don't want to smell that speaking of smells what about the casino we were what? at all of us lately uh, and we were walking around it was the worst collection of smells I've ever smelled you know, like, you, know you go into a casino usually it smells like uh, coconut or whatever and you might not like it but at least <laughs> it's consistent That we were walking around and like I don't know Everything just was a bombardment of smells and sounds and everything, and it made you not want to stay there. Well, like you went you back to smell, your room. I mean, it's because they had different restaurants, and you know they had loud smoking, and you could smell the cleaning products. So you walk through the food court or whatever, and and you've got Chinese food hitting you in the face, and pizza and Subway bread and music. The music was overlapping from the different restaurants, so you had three different kinds of music hitting you in the face, and it was it was kind of debilitating. <laughs> The just environment that it was. Yeah, I remember um, just distinctly how those bombardments of smells and everything affected me that night. I I love to play poker, and um, that constant bombardment of smells and sounds and everything just made me not want to do anything. I remember walking back from the poker. So I mean, I ended up did actually go and play poker, but <laughs> um, nothing worked. On my way back, you know, I was hungry and I wanted to uh, get something to eat, but everything was just kind of turning me off and I just ended up going back to my room and not wanting to do anything you went to bed without dinner <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but that actually was one of the interesting things in, the, in this book is this, the effect of smell on um, people's choices in 
in their purchases was one of the experiments was with stockings where they were the exact same stockings, um, the same brand, color, everything identical, and one of them had a slight, uh, a subtle smell on it, and the majority of people bought the ones with the smell on it. And when asked why they bought that particular one, they described everything about the stocking except for smell. They described how it stretched and the fabric and that it seemed better made and everything else. And they not once did they mention that, you know, so there's some kind of, there's, there's some kind of synesthesia, like light synesthesia going on all the time with everybody. And some people have the extreme cases where they'll, they'll hear, they'll see a note as a color or or whatever. But most people just have this blurry, kind of everything influences everything about them which is crazy to me when you look at the restaurants that like spend so much time and care getting every aspect of it right from like the menu to the what the uh staff's wearing like you know the waiters and waitresses what they're wearing mm. and the fucking everything's thought about and they just put on some horrific playlist they and need to take a they need to take a page out of the retail industry's book because they've got it's music. It's like eating in an elevator. They've got <laughs> music figured out the retail industry. They, they've done all kinds of studies on what tempo makes you buy stuff. So I think something like 100 and something BPM um, that makes it's the tempo that makes you sort of nod your head. And so you're walking through a store and you look at some jeans and this music's making you nod your Is head. It- and now you associate that movement, movement with... An affirmative, yes, I'm going to purchase this. This is true, or you're just no, saying? No, this is true. This is actually true. It, and uh, Because I've forever said that... Or, like, alternative music is just meant to make you buy something at Urban Outfitters. But I didn't know there was actual science to back me up <laughs> Some on of that. it makes me want to buy stuff. <laughs> yeah, it makes me want to buy earplugs. Yeah. Well, obviously, at the highest level, there are people very aware of these... Uh, subtleties and then at the lowest level there are people that are completely unaware of it because I was at lunch um, one time with a big group of friends and it was packed it was 11am so technically it was brunch but um, <laughs> he just didn't want to was, say that because you know we'd give him shit for going to brunch, brunch. Um, but there was a DJ like an EDM DJ playing at 11am in this place and you could see the entire restaurant constantly looking up try to getting, trying to get someone's attention basically with the look on their face was like could, can someone Tell this guy to shut the fuck up. <laughs> We're trying to eat our blueberry pancakes. Yeah, I want to <laughs> eat my pesto eggs. That's uh, the Joe... Where were we? What, I think it was a Joburg airport. Yeah, they were playing Marvin Gaye. And I was like, man, this airport's Johannesburg, cool. South yeah. Africa. Yeah, it felt, like, it felt like a cool movie scene. I was like, man, this airport's awesome. There's such a vibe. Everybody's going somewhere, getting home. Everybody seemed like they were smiling more. And yeah. then I realized they're playing Marvin Gaye and not the typical shit that I you... I feel like that's, that's such They just a, wanted to get it on. <laughs> that's such a cool potential to change, you know, to, to think, think of something that you like is really clinical, you know, whatever, a hospital or an airport or someplace and put on a really fucking cool playlist. Like, imagine how it would change people's feeling when they go into a place like that. The DMV. You know, play <laughs> some fucking good music at the DMV people would not hate it as much. The opposite of that is true, though. If you think about, like, a lot of people now, Danny, you were telling me something about, like, someone you were talking to, like, the idea of classical music now, they hate it. Oh, uh, you know, I, I forget remember. who it was you were talking to, but, like, but what, if you think about now, the only time you hear classical music, if you don't listen to classical music specifically, mm-hmm. is... Like, you're you taking know, a piss. You're taking a piss in a, a bathroom in an airport or at a Harkins theater, movie theater yeah. a movie mm-hmm. theater. So now well, on that Boston a- gig where we were staying, you want, like it was the occasionally we get a fancy hotel room if the promoter is booking, you know, if we're not. <laughs> and so yeah, that was everybody's like, well, this hotel's kind of fancy, and you walk into your room and it's just that kind of generic classical something that yeah. they pipe into the rooms. Hayden or something. Yeah, Hayden. It's some. It's, I think what it is is usually they they've got like a clientele that wants to feel separate from the earth. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Well, you know, I just felt so. I took a video actually because uh, they had these like cool sort of mid-century looking radios. You know, the, it was a wooden radio with cool silver knobs, mm-hmm. and it was piping like you said generic classical music. And I walked in and I was like, "Where's that music? Oh, that, that's in my room. They're playing that music," and I could just imagine what was going through their head. We want people to walk into our hotel rooms and feel sophisticated, take <laughs> off their sport coat, throw it on the valet, and just, you know, book room service. 
There's Which something is exactly very funny what we did. Yeah, <laughs> I felt so. I yeah, felt but you do you always rich. get that. Anytime you do something that's sophisticated, you get that guilty feeling, which is just like this is goofy. This is so. Well, goofy. That's why I took a video because yeah. for a second I thought, oh, this is a nice hotel room, and then I thought, wait, this music is influencing me. So I took a video, and uh, you know, I was picturing Wayne's World when he rolls down the, you know, tells the guy in the Rolls Royce like the Grey Poupon ever. Excuse me, sir, do you have any Grey Poupon? <laughs> that's how you know if someone's full of shit because if they can do too many of those types of sophisticated things without making fun of themselves in a row, mm. that's when you know they're not to be trusted. Yeah, yeah. Like if you go to too many brunches and you do too many of those hotel experiences all in a row, not to be trusted. Yeah. <laughs> if they like smother their face with the wine gloss and pretend like they're entering a new world. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. just not my great. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, oh, that's a good yeah, I was going to say we should wrap up this podcast, but that story you got to tell. Yeah, it's just a. Suffice to say that I like wine. You know, most people like wine. I'm not that crazy. Most about of it. us in, in, like it enough to say, "Oh, I like this one." Yeah, this one. Uh, this one's drier. This one's fruitier. Whatever. Uh, I heard at a party this guy say. Oh yeah, that's just not my grape. <laughs> <laughs> this is our introduction to LA, though. It we, stuck with me, yeah. You know, so now I say it. You know, I take a sip of it could be beer. That's just not my grape. But just remember, everyone needs to remember us talking about this and making fun of that guy because we're going to do an episode, I'm sure, where we talk about scotch and we're going to be the most pretentious. Yeah, yeah but I, I I'll was, get pretentious as fuck. I was about cured scotch. of that because I, I mean, I, I do have opinions about whiskey and stuff like that, and I like to have opinions, but. Uh, when I can't remember which bar I was drunk at, but I thought I was drinking like a rye, you know, and I was just drink. I was drinking. I didn't know what the fuck I was drinking, it. and that's when I gave up on having opinions about this <laughs> kind of thing because I realized you could have given me vodka, and I wouldn't have known what I was drinking. You it. can have an, an opinion about the first one, maybe two drinks. After that, your opinions get cut off. Yeah, and but blind t- blind testing is something everybody should do in every area of their life, just well, in mixing, in in food, in everything. Just what? What are you gonna say? I was gonna say just to finally wrap it up. That's another study in the book. <laughs> How your unconscious rules your behavior uh, is is one of the wine studies where they gave two people, um, or they gave people the same wine but they priced it differently. And everyone loves the expensive wine, and they can describe all sorts of things and they can attribute all sorts of tastes and <laughs> smells to the expensive wine, even though they were both the expensive wine, I think, from yeah. the same bottle. So. This podcast is $99. Right. Uh, I had some fucking brilliant thought, but I'll leave it for the next one. All right, yeah. So that's our second episode. We're going to keep doing these. Keep tuning in. Make sure you hit subscribe uh, on whatever you're listening on to this on, Apple or Stitcher or Google Play. And find us at congress.com slash podcast to check out all the pictures and links from each episode that we're talking about. See podcast you guys next week. Podcast. Podcast. <laughs> P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Congos.com slash podcast. All right, see you guys next week. We'll talk to you guys next week. Bye.